Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with David Jacobs. David, I want to thank you for being on the show. You're a California business broker and got a lot of experience in this space, and I think we're going to have a fun conversation today. Well, thank you for the invitation, Ron. I uh, look forward to this conversation. Cool. We start in the same place almost every time. I kind of jokingly ask people, you were born, now you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Could you fill out the gap in between? How did you end up on my show, man? Uh, well, there were there were a few years in between those stages, but uh, um, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I lived on the East Coast for a while. Um, when I came out to California in the mid-90s, I uh, went into the corporate software world and worked at companies like Oracle and Siebel Systems, uh, BMC Remedy, and Sousa Linux. And then I uh, really made a a career change and decided to pursue something entrepreneurial. I uh, took over a family business, and uh, it was my father's and my uh, my mother and sister's out of it. It's kind of a family emergency, and I stepped in. Um, He sold commercial printing, almost exclusive catalog work, um, and uh, worked with four printers and had a, a, a nice... A uh, list of uh, loyal customers. So it, it was a good business for him. And I saw an opportunity to expand it by uh, creating some software. And uh, that's what I did for seven years. Awesome. So you actually uh, got to play the, uh, the the role of taking over the family business. I did that at an earlier stage of life. Uh, when I was 16 or almost 17, uh, my father owned a painting and remodeling business. And he kind of just said, you know what, you run it. And I'll work when I need a little extra cash to go fishing or something. He overseen it. It was kind of like, uh, I, I now see that it was him training me. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, all, all, you know, the, the, all the people that worked there and helped us out all knew me as the guy that ran it. Right. So uh, it was an interesting yeah. way. The, the fun thing was, is I, I think I was an entrepreneur for bro, from birth because uh, I told the story on the show before, but uh, I asked him to uh, probably at 13 or 14. I asked him if I could work for him. He says, oh, you're not old enough. You're not old enough. Maybe a little bit younger than that. And I'd already worked a summer job stocking shelves at the local gas station where my mom had worked. But uh, I wanted to earn some money. So I just grabbed the push mower. We lived about five and a half miles from the nearest house. Like we were like from town. Mm-hmm. Everybody, My next door neighbors had 3,000 plus acres, right? So uh, we had a little 26 acre pecan grove. I grabbed my, uh, the family push mower and pushed it all the way into town and started mowing lawns. And after a week or two of that, my dad's like, if you're willing to work that hard, I want you, I want you helping me. So yeah. uh, that started the, uh, going out and painting houses with my father. Let's jump into kind of, there, there's this, there's this kind of boiling up topic that everybody's asking about. And we talk, you and I talked about it before the, before the show a little bit, the economy, the interest rates and stuff, you know, how do you see that impacting, you know, business brokerage, buying and selling businesses, the ability to sell your business? Sure. So, you know, I can speak from my own experience and um, I'm, I'm pretty narrow in the type of clients that I work with, you know, part of a firm. And if somebody comes to me and it's not my niche, I'll refer them to a colleague. But, um, you know, I'm very focused on software businesses and services business. And there's a hybrid in between the two, which I call a software enabled service, which is what my printing business evolved into. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think um, my, my general impression of what's about to happen here is, um, you know, the interest rates are going up. 
the economy is going to uh, wash out some of these companies that uh, kind of aren't very well managed and aren't positioned in a, um, a competitive area or within a competitive position. And, um, you know, they're going to go away and uh, there's not going to be much there left to sell. But the good businesses will survive. And when you think about the discount rate that's applied to the valuation of these small companies, whether the interest rate is 3% or 6%, you know, these businesses are getting discounted at 20 to 25 or 30% in the valuation. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's really going to affect the valuation. I think it's just going to wash out the, uh, the poor performers. So I see that. I think we were talking about the show. I know that for me, it's impacting what I'm looking for. So I think it might do that with some of the other buyers as far as, you know, what are we, what industries are we looking at and, you know, kind of are they recession proof? Do you think that's the case across there? You know, that you think that's a personal bias of mine or you think that's the case? A lot of buyers are going to take a second look at what they're thinking about getting into. Well, you know, I think it really depends on the, um, the type of buyer and the imagination. You know, you had talked about coffee roasting and I yeah. would say, you know, do you really want to own a coffee shop in like a downtown area where people may or may not be coming to work every day? Probably not a good business, but perhaps that's an opportunity to develop a coffee roasting business with one retail location and then ship those high margin beans all over the country. So, you know, can you see a business that's failing or likely to, you know, uh, rapidly contract based on the new envi working environment? And then in your mind, come up with a new way of bringing those products to market and grow it into something very large. And, um, you know, I know out here, you know, I'm in California and people are into gourmet coffee, but there's a number of small roasters that you would say, oh, you know, this business is gone because uh, people aren't coming into work. But, you know, they've gotten boxes and UPS machines and now they're shipping their beans all over the country and they're buying bigger and bigger roasters, which tells me, you know, business is good and growing. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I see I think you can kind of make those leaps in a lot of different industries and you can get your foot into a, you know, maybe a slightly declining local business at a, a big discount, and then you can reposition it for something that can achieve and be successful for the next 10 or 20 years. So you're right in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? You're, you're, you know, I lived right. I was just, we were talking about this, uh, this before the show. I lived probably five, 10 miles from you for in the early 2000s for about nine years, worked up and down that valley. Is the reason that you're in that software and that stuff is just because that's what's abundant around you? Or is it because that's what your background's from? Um, you know, I would say it's both. And I would say that, you know, most of my clients are not local because a venture-backed startup does not use a business broker, you know, those are, those are either grow very quickly and become large public companies or the funding gets shut off and they decline. Most of my clients are, you know, bootstrapped. It's an engineer who had a product idea. It grew into a, you know, a company, they have 20 to 50 employees. They're generally not here. Um, so I think that really what I can bring is, you know, I, because I worked in this world, I, I do have contacts at these large public companies like Oracle and Microsoft, and LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but I also understand the business. And I think the understanding of the software business from a business broker perspective is pretty unique. You know, if, if you're doing 20 or $30 million, you'll meet lots of very knowledgeable investment bankers that can help you exit your business. But if you have a software company doing three, five, maybe $10 million, there's not that many business brokers that can really navigate that world. They don't have that kind of corporate experience. And I, I think that's what I bring. I was kind of, I guess it's a, 
I, I was kind of making the assumption you, you would end up dealing with a lot of uh, divestors and stuff because where you're located, do you get, do you get very many of those where people are, the bigger companies are trying to divest of, uh, you know, some, some software company or piece of a software company that they had bought that they don't really need? Um, that, no, I okay. haven't found that. It's usually just an owner operator and, um, you know, they're, uh, they, the private equity funds are very active at cold calling and trying to engage in a, a non-competitive transaction. Oh, yeah. And um, the best client of all for me is when one of those deals falls through and that, you know, the, the seller has just, so I, I just spent $50,000 in accounting and legal fees and you're not interested in my business anymore. What, what just happened? Um, that's a, a, that's a great client for me because they've been through the process and they know what to expect. I it get that competition. So I actually had a, a gentleman on the show that he uh, has a defense or a software security type of business. And he, he only gets he, like, I asked him what his sourcing deal flow was. And the reason I was asking about divestors is he's got connections through all that. And he, buy, he buys a lot of companies divesting, you know, they, they buy a bigger company that had a software arm doing a different product and mm -hmm. they didn't want that product at all. So he, he buys those. But uh, so let's go into, you know, kind of just what is it the heart and soul? How do you how do you evaluate a software company or uh, or the uh, in your business? Are the valuations different? Because I know the mom and pop brick boring companies I have usually sell between one X to three X. And that's just kind of cookie cutter. Um, uh, I know a little bit about the software space and that those evaluations are both a little more complex because recurring revenue and mm -hmm. often. Uh, above that multiple yeah so you know software companies are um somewhat unique they they can be so desirable that people don't even pay attention to you know sde and ebitda they're looking at top line revenue growth um, which uh, you, I, I don't know of any other industry that where that exists um, and it's just the the amount of competition and interest there is from the buyers um but yeah, you know, uh, recurring revenue with low churn is highly valued and you can get multiples, I don't know, up to four or five times uh, revenue, recurring revenue, um, uh, services revenue and like uh, custom engineering work is less valuable because you, you really can't predict, you know, when the when the next payment will go through on the credit cards. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's slightly different. And I think... Um, you know, what throws people off if they haven't done a lot of software transactions is they get into, you know, trying to do a multiple off of earnings. And uh, that really breaks in this space because, um, you know, a software company can grow so quickly that the earnings multiple um, essentially doesn't make any sense. I get that. It was interesting when you said it was off of revenue because um, that's there's very few. I don't know if there's any other. There probably is, but um, industries where their multiples off the revenue as opposed to the... Uh, I mean, you can always calculate it, but, you know, um, I can get it. I, I understand why, just because a lot of the companies are doing the acquisition, uh, they're publicly traded and all they're trying to do is increase shareholder value. Mm -hmm. So by acquiring something, plus a lot of times they're acquiring for the talent. So right. some of these software companies get bought because of what engineers and software, uh, you know, experts you have on staff. And it's mm -hmm. so hard in this valley to hire great people that it just makes sense to, to buy those companies for the, the talent. It does. And it, you know, it's, it's very hard to decide if the, if the company really has strategic value and who that buyer would be versus a financial value. And, you know, what we read in the press are all these strategic acquisitions, um, eye popping multiples. And, 
you know, there are strategic acquisitions happening in the kind of lower middle market where I operate. Um, but there, you know, it, some are, you know, I'd say half, half, mm-hmm. you can find a strategic buyer. And then the other half is more of a financial buyer. It's a private equity fund that, um, you know, sees it as a standalone business. It could be bolted onto another acquisition and there'd be some synergy. And then the idea is to grow it and sell it as a middle market company, some, you know, five to seven years down the road. So if you, if you got a listener out there and they operate a software company, what are your three top things they need to know before they sell? Is it any different than a brick and mortar company? Um, You know, I would say that for a software company in the lower middle market, which is, you know, where I am. So, you know, 3 million to 20 million in revenue. Um, the buyer pool is pretty limited, right? Because these, if if your business is running well, it's going to be worth way more than the five million dollar SBA loan. So um, it's very hard to sell this to a kind of a, a person, right, an owner operator, um, because they just can't come up with that amount of capital to buy it. So you're really looking at like a private equity fund. And um, uh, the interesting thing about working with the private equity buyers is that they have a tremendous amount of capital, right? They're not cash constrained at all where they are constrained is with time. So getting the business properly packaged and put together so they can quickly say yes or no without spending, you know, tens or hundreds of hours, I think is the key part in courting these types of buyers. It's interesting. And let's talk a little bit about the structure of the deal because it is different. Usually an SBA loan almost always, I would say 99.9% is 100% buyout and the owner cannot be involved afterwards to the fact that they can't own anything. The SBA has a guideline and it says you're buying hundred percent of the company. Um, mm-hmm. The opposite is typically true from my understanding from the private equity and that private equity wants to leave some of the equity with the, the regional CEO and have them stay around and do an earn out or, a, um, you know, to operate the company. Is, is mm-hmm. that true in most cases? Um, it is. And I, you know, I- I'll broaden this, but there's yeah. four or five different types of buyers, mm-hmm. um, you know, really understanding um, what, what my client, the seller wants in terms of their, uh, you know, next five or 10 years of their professional life uh, lets me know who to approach. Right. So, uh, you know, a private equity fund is not a long-term buyer. They're a, yep. a buy, grow and flip. Right. Oh, yeah. So yep. Yep. You know, if you're okay with your business being sold again in five to seven years, that's potentially a good pool of buyers. Um, but you got to remember that a private equity fund is really a financial buyer and they're financial from, they're managing a, an asset portfolio. They're not operators. So they need somebody that's able to go, show up to work every day and run the business. And this is kind of the shortcoming of a, working with a private equity fund. If you look at like a family office, um, you know, th- there's absolutely no intention of flipping. They're going to own that thing for 15 or 20 years. They want to grow it as big as they can. And then they're going to pull out distributions. Um, so it's a very different approach and depending upon, you know, what kind of business and what kind of, I guess, values that the seller has, it, you, you kind of know who to, who to pursue. It's interesting as I was, I had Adam coffee on here and, uh, he, he, he grew a, uh, heat and air. One, uh, I think it's the second one to, you know, a billion in revenue. And we were talking about that process. They sold that to private equity. I think, if I'm not mistaken, like five times. And each time they wanted him to stay on as a CEO. So he sold like 80% of it, got to keep 20 or whatever. And then they sold 80% and, you know, of that. And you just, you know, if you look at that, there's a, if there's a way inside of this. You can get multiple paydays. If you're, a, if you're a good operator, you don't mind hanging around and you're just looking for ways to increase your wealth and exit to a private equity 
where you, you know, remain in and have assistant growing it. Cause those guys are, you know, they're acquiring other companies and plugging them into you. There's a lot of stuff going on. If you're a great operator, I, I don't know. There's, there's a faster way to considerable wealth than, than working through that process. Oh, I, you know, I completely agree. The, um, the buyers that come with institutional capital, whether it's a, you know, a private equity fund or a corporate strategic buyer or, um, a family office. Uh, these guys are very sophisticated and very bright. And if, if you have the type of personality where you can act, work well with those types of people and in a collaborative way, um, I, I think that there's tremendous, you know, one plus one is three, right? Because these guys are going to bring a perspective and a capital and access to talent that as a small business owner, there's no way you can come up with this by yourself. So is there any difference between like the family office and the private equity owner as far as what they're looking for? Centurion, one wants to flip it and needs an operator and the other one's going to hold on to it for long terms. Is there a different way to prepare each of those? Um, I think it's what the business is and how defensible the position is. So, you know, I would say like some type of a consumer focused um, software or a SaaS business is probably more of a private equity play because they have a, a short time frame and looking they really want to hop on the trends and grow, whether it's some kind of a consumer product or a business application. Um, whereas, you know, if you have a, a software product that's, you know, well-developed and mature, so not much engineering effort, and you control a small niche that, you know, it can't be very large, so the big public companies won't consider it, um, but it's completely defensible and there's no way that, you know, Google and Microsoft and those other players can get in there. Um, that all of a sudden becomes a candidate for family office because they, you know, the business has to survive for 15 or 20 years. That's their time frame. I get it. So, so I love a good, making a classic versus a hit movie, right? You know, sure. the private equity guys are looking for the hits. The, uh, uh, the family office is looking for a, a classic that, you know, people will watch every year and they'll continue to collect the royalties off of them. I got it. I got it. So this, I love a great story. Tell me, um, tell me about a, one of your favorite deal transactions. Like, you know, you don't have to name the company. I know there's non-disclosures and all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff like that. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing, what's one of your favorite deals you help uh, facilitate? Um, you know, I can talk about a software company that I sold um, where there were, uh, there were two partners. Uh, one guy was in his mid sixties and had really devoted most of his working life to the business. He'd been in it a little over 20 years and, um, you know, pulled a small salary, but certainly did not get wealthy from owning it and running it. Um, and he had brought on a, a younger partner who was in his mid thirties, very capable um, uh, software master's degree in computer science from a you know very well-respected school. Um, and the younger guy ran the business day to day. The, the older guy kind of stepped back and was doing more accounting and receivables and kind of strategic plans. And um, uh, they needed to sell. And, you know, in a normal business, the young guy would take out an SBA loan and buy the guy out in time. Um, but with software company valuations, there was no way to get that amount of capital. Um, so, we, you know, we packaged it up and went to market. And uh, uh, we really, we got, a, we met a, just a number of very impressive buyers. I think we got 14 offers wow. um, to large public companies and private equity. And um, anyway, we, we got way more than what the financial value of the business was and uh, the younger guy was actually hired by the uh, um, the buyer, a large public company, and given a, a you know a very high level role uh, with guaranteed you know impressive salary for many years. And um, you know not only did they both 
uh, get a fair amount of cash. But it really, the young guy who you know still had lots of ambition and drive, really got moved up onto a kind of a global stage from what was a you know a small platform that he was working from earlier. So it was uh, just a great deal all around, not only financial but also in terms of everybody's career. Awesome. So. What's a is there a horror story that you're willing to share? Like just something like terribly went wrong, and and there you know, or a, maybe even something that has a great value learned, lesson learned that you you know you'll avoid next time. Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty new at this business brokering um, job. I've been doing it uh, a little over three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of my clients are great. I have a, a client now who's you know, I mean, we're in due diligence. This deal is going to close. I'm going to miss talking to him every week because the deal's going to close and we'll, we'll both be on to the next thing. Um, they're great. Um, I had a client in the past that just refused to listen. And, um, you know, I guess my takeaway from that is it's really, it's a partnership, right? I'm not your vendor. I'm your partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm going to see all the dirty laundry that's hidden in your financial statements and understand both the good and great, you know, decisions that you've made along the way and also see some of the mistakes that have been made. And if you don't have that kind of personality to work collaboratively, um, I, I'm not going to be able to find you a buyer because the buyers are bright and they're going to get into the details and find out what's happened. And if you can't say, hey, you know, I tried this and it didn't work and this is what I learned and this is how we pivoted. If you become defensive, um, you know, none of these deals will ever close because the buyers can't work with somebody like that. It's, you know, it's a transaction between two people in the end. And if you're not the kind of person that's trustworthy over a, the 12 month transition, um, you know, nobody's going to risk capital with you. I think the other side of that is if you try to hide any of that, we're going to, you know, buyers are going to find it and then you just destroy trust, you know, oh, yeah. you yeah. have to get out in front of it. Yeah. It's one of those, if I find something that should have been disclosed and it wasn't, it's just natural to go, okay, what else are you not telling me? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, so you know, everybody appreciates how hard it is to be an entrepreneur and they like, you know, if you say I tried it, it did work. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's um, more attractive to a buyer than, um, you know, not, not disclosing, not talking, um, making the business seem really simple, which none of these are, everybody would be doing it. It's, it's, it's really just a, it's a transaction between people and you need that kind of personality to work collaboratively, I think is what I've learned. I'd love to actually have conversations with business owners and find out what didn't work and why it didn't work. Cause that's my first question is what didn't work about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is you're handing this something. If we're buying this, we already see what works. It's on the books. It's I've got, you know, hopefully I've got some operating procedures around it and everything, but knowing what you've tried, how, you know, how you went about trying it and why it didn't, why you feel like it didn't work is very valuable in the fact that anybody buying something thinks they're going to grow it. Right. right. I think they're going to they're going to go out and try things and, and grow it. Right. And, uh, you know, I've had one guy, you know, he he almost sunk his business with something he tried and uh, didn't end up buying the company. But I honestly think the only reason it, it failed what he tried is he was probably about a year and a half too early. Right. Okay. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I just moved back to the Bay Area. I'm about an hour and a half north of you. I'm in North Bay now. And, uh, you know, when I first lived here, it was the 90s. I used to the solo fish the, the the Sacramento River in a canoe, and people thought it was crazy. And now I see people out there. I, mean, I was fishing for sturgeon in a canoe and having them drag me up the river. And now I see people right. doing it on, on YouTube constantly in kayaks. 
And uh, in the nineties, I was crazy. Now it's an in thing to do. Same thing with some of these things in the business, just because somebody tried it, they might've just been too early to the market. And, uh, but just understanding what they tried, what, when they tried it, you know, what they would have done different. That's considerably valuable information that you know to have conversations about it's another reason why i think the private equity guys and uh even myself are willing to leave some equity on the table for the previous owner just to have a, a reason for us to to chat on a regular basis you mm-hmm. know and, well, it's really you know business is a team sport so uh you know you got to have a team behind you and um you know some some i've coached some of my clients to say oh i work you know 70 hours a week i work so hard that's not attractive to a buyer, right? You're like, I, I work 40 to 50 hours a week. Sometimes I get called in the evenings, but you know, my staff is great. And they, if I got hit by a bus, the business will continue to operate. And that that's what the buyers want to hear. They don't yeah, want that's to- what we want, right? I got on the phone, a friend of mine uh, was looking looking in the auto industry and he, he, he I don't think, I think he got it through a broker uh, or one of the biz buy sell type of sites or whatever, but it was a, uh, they did upholstery, they did uh, window tinting and you would think that's small, but they were doing one point, And this is in Oklahoma, uh, I know, towards Oklahoma city. They were doing like 1.7 million in revenue, uh, tinting windows and fixing upholstery and stuff. So it wasn't that small. Right. And, uh, as we get to talking, they're asking the owner, well, you know, or the broker. So what does the owner want to, you know, sell? Well, he, want, he wants more time. He's a professional golfer. He wants more time on the golf course. I was like, cool. He's willing to stay on part-time. And so my response was, okay, what's part-time? And he said, well, you know, 30, 40 hours a week would be wonderful. Hmm. I'm like, okay, wait a second here. Now, how many hours is he working? And it turns out this guy is working 13, 14 hours a day, you know, six days a week on this business. And uh, he has not one, but out of seven employees, he has two others. So three people are working those kind of hours. He has a window. He had a window tinter. They only like they out of all that business. I think eighty percent of was the, was the tinting, and one guy was doing all of it because he was on commission. He loved to work. He would work fifteen hour days on on a regular basis, six days a week, mm-hmm. and make a ton of money because it was commission based. Right. And uh, you know, the guy, the buyer, I was working with a friend of mine is about to pass the bar. And I said, well, you do realize there's some labor issues here, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, you're about to pass the bar and you, you're going to be under deep scrutiny. There's a couple of things you, you, you want to be hesitant. I don't think you can call that guy a 1099 employee the way he's doing. So there's a lot of stuff right. that rose up. But when you did the math backwards, a lot of the, the sellers don't realize when we see that, I see you're working 90 hours and working three jobs. I have to, well, you know, and you're adding back your salary or whatever. I got to take back and look at the three salaries it takes to replace you. Exactly. So they had three people working the jobs of six or seven, you know, depending on how you broke it out. The company well, wasn't very profitable. Is, why, does it, why is there so much labor involved in producing that amount of SDE, right? Could the business be organized in a different way or the pricing models changed to be more of a, a reasonable level of commitment? Yeah, and that's great, but we're not turnaround buyers, right? No. We we, uh, we actually don't want to buy anything. We actually have to physically operate for more than a few weeks of you know getting used to it. So you know, I can't bring in a single operator to replace the owner. Um, I have to bring in three, and then I have to bring you know break that one guy's work down and have at least one apprentice underneath him in case he decides he's leaving and doing it on his own. There's just so many different things. When you broke down the model, the math just didn't make sense. It wasn't near, not nearly as attractive of a business. Mm-hmm. So um, 
that, that happens in the software world, world too. I, I came from that space. I, I lived here in Silicon Valley. I was director of operations for some of the bigger IT companies and uh, tech companies in town. And uh, it was not uncommon for to pull 60, 80 hour weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, every, uh, I was responsible for all the computer systems for every outage they ever had. If it wasn't fixed within so many minutes, they had to get me on the phone. Uh, right. Even as a, even when I got all the way up to the senior director, everything escalates, right? So instead of being on the phone in the first five minutes of outage when I was a tech, now it might be, okay, you're down for 30 minutes, you have to call me. Um, but, you know, that's the way you get the stuff. So even in the software companies, I think you have this problem where, you know, somebody acquiring it finds out you're pulling 80-hour weeks. Um, that's well, just- and, you know, if, if you're writing software... And maybe you have a team of five or 10 engineers working for you, but you're the only one that can make like the architectural decisions. Why, why is it so complicated that you're the only one that understands it? That's, that's a big question for a buyer, right? right? Cause that's, um, that's not safe, right? That's owner dependent and, owner, you know, the hardest businesses of, of all to sell big, small, doesn't matter. An owner dependent business can't be sold. Yeah. The other side of it is, is a lot of times these guys, every client they have only works directly through through them right mm-hmm. and that happens it has to happen in the software side too like you're the lead sales guy if something breaks or a service you know somebody needs you to to fix something or report a bug they they call the owner and right. um that that just pretty much concretes you into you know you got cement shoes you can't leave that company until you get somebody that can handle those right. roles right and i would say that applies to the sales and marketing too right i mean if it's if it's my reputation within a community or geography um, you know, you're not me, you can't replicate that. So, uh, you know, one of the first things I talk to people about is just, okay, day one, where do I find the next new customer? How, you know, are people calling in? Are they on our, do I have to go to a conference? How, how does that work? Walk me through that. And, um, you know, you, I, I'm surprised by how many people don't have a process and a system in place that sales, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's more common than you think, right? Uh, we did a roll-up last year, and uh, we were working on marketing agencies. And a matter, uh, there was a team of us, uh, M&A guys, there was about eight of us that were on this company. And uh, three of us were the acquisitions that were, were out there talking to marketing agencies. In a matter of less than 200 days, like I think it was like 100, 185 days, we talked to 216 agencies. And uh, the common thread amongst them was finding good people, right? like sourcing staff mm-hmm. and lead generation. Now you would think that marketing company, now there were a bunch of those companies. We were talking to lead generation companies also. They were finding, finding their own leads. But mm-hmm. a lot of these big marketing companies, COVID really impacted them because, you know, uh, I used to call it, you know, uh, wine, coffee, and elbows. If, if you couldn't bump their elbow or drink wine or coffee with them, you they didn't land them. So they went to trade. They, you know, a lot of these guys got all their customers through trade shows, through, you know, networking with, you know, somebody mm-hmm. introduce, you know, one of your friends introducing you to the owner of this or whatever. Right. And when COVID hit, they were just at a loss. So uh, uh, lead generation, finding uh, how do customers find or how do companies find new customers? I, I, I'm not surprised when I hear a lot of times, oh, I'm the, uh, I'm the lead sales guy from owners because he had to be right. so when he, when he founded it. You know, you know, started. I can tell you that this is a this is you know we were talking earlier about how you can take a small business that may be declining revenue and transform it. I think this sales and marketing area is a huge potential, right? I, I have a client now who um, he represented a buyer on a, 
early in my career when I was working on a deal and he has a, a family law practice and he wanted to sell it and he called me and I'm like, I don't think I do law firms because those are relationships, personal relationships between the attorney and the client. He's like, that's not what we're doing. It's like, we're finding our clients online through digital marketing and um, we're finding a lot of them. And I, I looked at the numbers and how he was doing it. I'm like, wow, this, this is a, a sales and marketing process, just like a software company. And this will sell like, and there's the buyer interest. So, you know, even in a business that you would say this, this isn't how it works. If you can make it work, you could grow a, a fairly large company out of that idea. And those are very appealing to, especially what he's got there as a law firm. That's a very appealing to other law firms because they're not taught that in college, right? They're taught how right. to do law. So the fact that he's figured out how to digitally source new clients would be extremely valuable you know, it's funny thing is, uh, I I found out through uh, trial and error that you can't own a law firm, at least in Oklahoma, when I was there, unless you're an attorney. Because I was one of my businesses with a real estate investment firm. We spent so much money on attorneys. I was like, I'm just gonna buy a law firm and have them work for me, and then they can do other work on the side. And uh, I talked to uh, this the state bar association. I just called the state bar association and asked what that process would look like. And they said, you just can't do it. They don't allow yeah. it. That's, so. that's also true of a lot. Like I sold a, a group mental health practice. They had 50 therapists in Oregon. And, um, you know, you had to be, you have to be a licensed physician in that state to own a medical practice. So that, that also applies. That's interesting because there's a way around that. There's, they're called medical service organizations. You can actually set an MSO or a, there's a dental service organization too. So to buy a, a medical facility, you can set that up in most states. I think like almost all but two states, you can actually, uh, uh, do a medical service organization or a dental service organization. That's what I was fishing for. Is there some type of legal service organization where okay. I own the building, I own the uh, the systems, the processes, and everything else? I do, you know, and then I employ uh, attorneys, and I can't tell them what legal decisions to make. Like, you, if you own an MSO, you can't tell a doctor you can't prescribe this. You have to prescribe that. That's all. That's right. it, that, that's that's banned. But uh, you can. And a lot of people do. I, I have friends doing a, a dental roll-up uh, where they're buying up dental offices, and uh, but they're doing it through dental service organizations. And they're not cheap. It's like not, they're not expensive. Uh, they're about twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars per state. So you have to set them up by state by state by state. Okay. But uh, so if you ever have another guy that wants to sell it or something, and you want to think about it, there is a way around that. It's just uh, the. California is probably double that. Everything that's legal here is more expensive. So of course, <laughs> like but, uh, yeah. So uh, it's like my wife asked me to. We're moving here. We're here now, and I was like, she was like, first. That's my first thing. I was like, you want me to move where? <laughs> but I remember she didn't blink an eye when I told her I wanted to move where I wanted to move, take care of family. So now we're we're here. Uh, so for those of you listening to the show, the reason the backdrop's not my monkey anymore is I'm actually sitting in my tiny home in a forest in the middle of uh, a redwood forest in California. So uh, beautiful. Uh, you and I need to go get coffee or something someday. I drink uh, uh, higher end <coughs> teas that most coffee shops carry them since. I go down to the Bay. I haven't been down since I've been back, but I'll be down in the Bay a lot. I know a lot of people down there. Okay. Well, that would be great. So what's one common myth in, inside of this profession and uh, specifically to software and in your, like there's something that's commonly known or like commonly believed in the space that, you know, in most spaces, is there anything out there you just wish didn't exist as a conversation? <laughs> you know, I think this, um, 
So I'll, I'll flip something on its head. Okay. Uh, this idea that, you know, I'm going to start high with a very high asking price and negotiate down. Um, I, I haven't seen that work, not once. Um, and the reason why is that the, just like I said before about the private equity guys, the people with money, with real money, they don't have a lot of free time and they don't want to play this negotiation game. So uh, I, I think it's better to put a fair price on the business using standard multiples or metrics, however the industry values typical transactions. And then you attract enough buyers that you create competition because a lot of these guys, they're very competitive. And once they decide this is the business they want, they're not going to let it go. Um, and the, the price goes up and, you know, it's, it's never, you know, here's your check for $12 million and, you know, you hand them the keys. It's always, well, here's a check for $10 million and I'll pay you another million dollars in six months and another million dollars in 12 months. And, you know, you have to work for this many hours. It's, there's always deal terms and um, uh, you, you really, you got, but the competition not only pro, uh, pushes up the valuation, but it, it gets those deal terms to be more rational because of course the buyers are going to try to overreach if they sense they're the only one that's interested. It's interesting as uh, I was smiling real big because I just thought about like the last time I've been to an auction is I really overpaid for a couple of items there. Cause number one, I really wanted them and I didn't mm -hmm. like the, the guy bidding, you know, against me it was, you know, kind of laughing and thought it was funny. So I was like, you can't outbid me. So you yeah. end up getting this little awkward, you know, irrational, I want to say, uh, war uh so uh about eight nine months ago we were on the phone with somebody he's like hey i've got two other offices like you know that are higher than yours i was like i had to say it i was like i'm sorry you, you should probably take one of those because mm -hmm. i was at where i needed to be and i didn't even want to know what their offer was because i had the gut feeling if they told me it was like ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars more in this particular case than what i was offering i probably would have tried to rationalize out doing them so at this stage, right. I was like, I knew this was a starting of, you know, them coming back me going back and bidding this thing up. I was like, you know, okay, I'm out. And, um, and you know, the, the other thing I'll say is that um, like the, the example I gave earlier about the software company that I sold to a large public company, you know, we had 14 offers. All, all the buyers were, you know, highly educated, extensive private equity finance experience. Everybody got the same financial statements and tax returns and the offers the highest offer was almost three times the lowest offer. So you give everybody the same information and depending on what their plans are for the future, they're going to produce a different valuation. And, now uh, I'm going to ask for, statistic for statistical purposes. I want to ask this because I've asked this a lot of times when I've heard the story, did the seller take the highest offer? Uh, in the end they did. Okay. Um, but the, uh, the final buyer um, at some point we went, we had three rounds of bidding with the mm -hmm. top three or four. Um, there were two two public companies and one private equity fund. They, the buyer liked them all equally. They're like, ah, oh, these are great guys. You know, they all have different plans, but we could we could see working with these people for an extended period of time. You know, can you sharpen the pencil? We like this, we don't like that. Blah, blah, blah. Um, they did take the highest offer because that buyer said, uh, we're buying this. And at this point, you just tell us the best you can do. We're offering a dollar more. Nobody's going to take this from us. So we can either, you know, run through a hundred iterations of this, or we can wrap this up now. And they wanted to get it in for that fiscal year with their taxes. So they're like, okay, this is the highest we could get. We went back to the number two and said, Hey, you know, could you push this up by 2 million? He's like, if I lose my job, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll bump this up a bit more that we could, we could still do it. Um, uh, but I understand the situation and uh, um, 
you know, we, we realize we're probably not going to get this one. That's interesting. The reason I ask that is most often, I would say almost 80, I'm guessing here, all statistics are all the statistics on this show are made up in my own head. Uh, about 80, 85% of it in my guess is the highest offer is not the one that's accepted. It's the person you, and especially with the brick and mortar companies, it's the person who's taking care of the brand, the employees, right? There's a lot of other factors that come in other than the number. You know, I would say that it's, it's typically the highest cash offer because all, you know, there's always a deal structure and somebody might come, I mean, I'll just throw numbers out. Let's say somebody comes and offers 12 million cash plus another million in a year. And somebody else comes and offers, you know, 15 million, but it's 7 million cash and 8 million over the course of three years. Typically they're going to take the most cash up front. Um, and it really depends on the employees and the time frame. You know, if, if they're selling to a private equity fund, they know the business is going to be um, sold and probably changed. But if the buyer has a, a history of coming in and, you know, firing all the employees and changing all the contracts, that's going to be a big red mark. Um, and it's unlikely to uh, be accepted. I didn't think about that buyer history. Actually, that would be a huge, especially in the P and E and the uh, private equity and the uh, family office is you could, you know, I never, I've never even considered that the, uh, that has a huge play into, you know, the decision-making process. What do you do with the lot? What do they do with the last three companies they bought? Well, even like, I mean, even before that stage, when the offer is accepted and closed, it's, you know, they're making an offer. How many offers have they made and how many deals have they, cross the finish line with because uh, from a seller's perspective, you know, usually in exchange for accepting an LOI, there's an exclusivity period and I have to take the business off the market and that slows. I mean, that's, it's not devastating if the deal doesn't close, but it means restarting and then explaining why the deal didn't close because it would raise the concerns from the other buyers that the first buyer found issues and due, due diligence. So, um, you know, it's, it's really asking for a fairly large commitment. So, we're, we're about uh, 40, 45 minutes into this. So I want to cover a couple of things. What resources are out there? If somebody, if they're, uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, the family offices have their stuff together. So the private equity from the seller's perspective, what resources are out there? How do they contact you? You know, if they're thinking about, okay, I'm looking at exiting in the next, you know, six months, three years, you know, somewhere in that range. Um, where do they need to start? What resources are available to them? Um, well, you know, uh, people that have lower middle market size businesses are welcome to contact me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open and willing to network and I, I like meeting people and hearing the story, even if it turns out it's not a good fit, but you know, three to 20 million in revenue and 20, let's say 20 to 50 or 15 to 50 employees in the U S love to talk to you. Um, I have a website that I run where I, um, uh, create some blog posts around my thoughts. So, you know, if I said anything interesting or controversial, it's, there's probably a long form kind of article that I've written with those same ideas because I tend to um, repeat. Uh, so that's davidjacobsbusinessbroker.com. Um, and um, I'm also, a, I'm a very big believer in exit planning. I, I do have the SEPA certification, even though, you know, I don't use it in a formal way. Um, but going through the exit planning exercise, even in a, um, an abbreviated form with somebody like me or some, I and mean, there's lots of people that can do exit planning um, and getting an idea of, you know, what's the business likely to receive offers for what are the tax implications? So, you know, working with your CPA, um, understanding what, what is documented and structured in your business so that when it it's time to go, 
uh, you know, time to sell the business is um, well-structured and uh, ready for a transaction, I think is a, a really great first step. Awesome. I appreciate it. And then uh, for you guys that are watching the show, you already know that I've got his name up and his LinkedIn profile up there. Uh, for those guys who are just listening in, it's the standard uh, LinkedIn, which is linkedin.com slash in David Jacobs. So actually it's, uh, let me double check that. It's Dave it's Jacobs. Dave S. Jacobs is my yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah, if I you search for David Jacobs business broker, I should come up. Yeah, you need to put the business broker. Your name's fairly common. I just lit it this morning and we're connected. And I was like, I had to dig a little bit. But if I once I put business broker up there, it popped up. I could see it. <laughs> but it's Dave's, D-A-V-E-S, Jacobs with an S doc. Uh, that's that's the name you uh, have under your URL. So it'll be in the show notes and that stuff. So um, I want to ask the favorite, my favorite question we like to, to talk about is, what can my audience or myself do for you? Uh, what, what is it? What's your next step in your journey? You know, how can we help you move forward? So, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for sellers who own quality businesses that have a, a real reason for selling. And, I, you know, I see it as a partnership. So um, if you are a seller and you're considering exiting your business, it's time to retire or something's come up in life. You know, I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you want to introduce me, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to referral fees. If you're a, a broker that's representing a buyer and you're interested in one of my clients, um, you know, I, I'm here to get the deal done. So I'm, I'm glad to pay referral and uh, fees like that and share in some of the uh, success fee that I earn through these transactions. I love networking and networking meetings and stuff as I get out and meet people around this space and, you know, and uh, go through the different meetings I go through. I'll keep my eyes open for uh, companies that fit your, your your profile too. Nothing nothing makes me happier than going, hey, I got a guy. So I uh, appreciate that. Sure. Let's see here. Uh, I think that's it, man. Uh, was there anything cool? Like what question? I, we asked a lot of questions. We covered a lot of topics. What should have I asked? What did I miss? Um, you know, I, it was a good conversation and you're fun to talk to. So I really enjoyed it. I, there's not a lot of open mind it's uh you know the, the business brokering thing is really a transaction between two people so uh you know it's talking and networking and you know if, if you're a seller talk to a number of brokers and get a feel for who you like if you're a buyer you know you want to meet not only this which you know, will help in a, uh, facilitate the transaction but you really have to meet a number of business sellers to get a feel and you'll find your way it's uh i don't know i'm a, I'm a big fan of entrepreneurship and uh you know, buying a business is, I, I think, a quicker way to earn a living than trying to start something from zero. It's, it's a hard road to try to launch from nothing. Yeah, I think it's a, got a higher chance of success, too. When you buy one, it's up and running. It's yours to, to, to crash and burn, and hopefully you won't do that. Uh, if you look at statistics, the odds of starting something, having the market accept it, and then having it grow to something significant is very difficult i mean it's i did the math and then uh the average like if you look at i think i think it coming down to like one in two thousand companies that are actually started ever crossed a million dollar revenue model and uh you know again like i said before all the statistics on this show are made up in my own head but if you look at the first five years you know somebody failed and you know those out of the ones that succeed past the five years only a certain percent a very small percentage of those cross that million dollars of revenue and you can either play that game and go try to start you know 100 200 or a thousand two thousand businesses to cross that mark you can go just buy one that's already there so where there's a well, process I appreciate it. for achieving 
I appreciate having you on here, man. I think it was fun. Uh, if there's anything else you want to add, make sure people know how to get a hold of you. Your links are in the show notes. Uh, if not, I'll call it a show. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the uh, the conversation. It was great. Welcome to California, or welcome back. Uh, welcome back. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, hang out for just a second after we're in, and that's the show, guys. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T. IEPM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.